Good morning, ladies. It's, it's wonderful to see how the Lord orchestrates every little detail, isn't it? <laughs> Cricket with no voice, and so here I am with a loud voice. Um, ready, aim, fire. This is a command that we hear to warriors who are in battle, in the height of battle, to get them ready to conquer the enemy. In our lesson this week, we saw Joshua meet king after powerful king in his attempts to, um, <clears throat> to conquer the land, as God had commanded him to do. He's ready for them because he knows that God is with him and God has given him instruction. He aims at the target that God has pointed out, and he fires the weapon in obedience all the way to victory. Now, I can identify with Joshua up to a little bit of a point because I have my own list of kings to conquer. See if you recognize any of these as I tell you a story that happened early in my marriage. I've always loved to cook, and I cook uh, unusual dishes a lot of times. I always get a lot of compliments on my cooking, so I think I do all right with it. Um, And so this particular day, I spent most of the afternoon making a dish for our dinner, something we'd never had before, sweet and sour pork. So I was very excited, waiting in anticipation for my husband to get home from work. He, he was working in surveying work at the time, and it's really physically tired. And he's always starving to death when he gets home. And so I was just, well, his taste buds were just going to dance when he sat down to this meal. You can imagine my dismay as he took the first bite of the meal. And he said, what did you do to these potatoes? <laughs> and I said, Potatoes? Those are chunks of pineapple, dear. I was sure it was just a case of mistaken identity. And as soon as he realized what it was, he was going to be fine. Wrong again. He begins to stab the pineapple and put it over to the side. And he said, who ever heard of putting pineapple in a meat dish? Don't ever make this again. Ugh. And so at this point, tears began to roll down my face. And in marched the kings. Now, this is where my story diverges from Joshua's story. King Anger comes in. How dare he criticize this meal? And then King Self-Righteousness. I would never act like this to anybody. I would never do this. And then King Self-Pity. I worked hard all afternoon, and what thanks do I get? And then... King inadequacy, I guess maybe I'm really not a good cook, because look at this. It's proof. King revenge, if that's how he's going to act, I'm going to fix tuna casserole tomorrow night. (laughs) The air was pretty thick for the rest of the night, because he couldn't figure out why I was upset, and I couldn't figure out why he wasn't groveling on the ground begging my forgiveness for his bad attitude about my meal. As an unbeliever at that time, we had no resources to ward off the kings that invaded our apartment that night. I didn't, I wasn't ready for a battle. I didn't even know I was in a battle. I didn't know what the target was. I had no weapons. 
and I didn't know how to fire them. The sad thing is that even 43 years into my walk with the Lord, if I'm not on the alert, very same scenario could take place again. So how do we gain victory over the enemy kings that invade our lives, that lie in wait for us to do us in? Today we're going to look at Joshua's battles and we'll see some anchors that established him in victory. Up to this point in the book of Joshua, Israel has been in charge on the offensive, choosing the battles that they would fight because their enemies have been immobilized by what they've heard about Israel's victorious God. But after the defeat at Ai, the enemy kings are emboldened to attack because now they see that victory is at least a possibility. What they fail to take into account is that at the end of chapter 8, as we saw last week, Israel partakes, uh, participates in a covenant renewal ceremony. They have seen the error of their ways, and they've renewed their covenant with God. And so in chapter 9, we see the Gibeonites approach. Now, this is a very subtle battle. It doesn't really look like much of a battle at all, but it is a battle nonetheless. It's a test of Israel's covenant loyalty. <clears throat> as you know, as you read this week in your scriptures uh, in jo- jo- shoot, Joshua 9, they used crafty means to deceive Israel into making a covenant with them, extracting from Israel a promise to um, protect them. And even though the leaders are skeptical about this envoy that comes to them and say, well, you know, how do we really know that you're not from nearby? You see, they have a little check in their spirit, yet they barge right ahead and make a covenant, and they invoke God's name even though they have not even consulted God's counsel. So when the truth comes out three days later, Joshua has a choice. He's at a ready, aim, fire moment. Will he show covenant loyalty by upholding the promise that he's made, or will he go back on his word? He has God's honor on his heart. And so to avoid bringing shame on God's name, he knows that he must uphold this covenant. He pronounces a curse on the Gibeonites, however, for their deception, and he condemns them to perpetual slavery. And in taking these actions, Joshua has dealt with the real enemy in this battle, and that is king failure, their failure to at first take into account God's counsel. So the the lesson that we might learn from this is don't let your failure get the best of you. It's not long till there's another test of covenant loyalty in the South. More consequences of the ill-advised alliance with the Gibeonites. Adonai Zedek, who is the king of Jerusalem, hears of Gideon's, Gibeon's traitorous alliance. You see, Gibeon is just a little north of Jerusalem. And Adonai Zedek knows that now that 
Israel has control over Gibeon, that they are, he is cut off from his northern allies. And Gibeon is also a center of commerce. It is on an important east-west trade route. The only way to trade with the Mediterranean is through the pass that goes right where, where Gibeon is built. And so Adonai Zedek, because they, he has realized that he's in big trouble, and because Gibeon has turned traitorous to, to the southern kings, he calls a coalition of other kings to join him to fight against Gibeon. And, of course, Gibeon knows he, they have no chance against this massive army, so they call Israel to their aid. And Israel is obligated to fight a battle that they didn't choose. Joshua is outnumbered by a powerful army, and he's quite aware of Israel's inadequacy faced with this massive army. So he is at another ready, aim, fire moment. Will he give in to the feelings of inadequacy? No, we see him engaging in fervent prayer to God, crying out to God for the impossible. And we see God moving heaven and earth to bring the victory as, he, as God sends hailstones, huge hailstones, and causes the sun and moon to stand still. And in a panic, these kings that have been recruited to fight this battle do something kings never do. They deserted their army, the height of cowardice, they run away and leave their men to face uh, without any, any headship or any direction. And they go hide in a cave. And it's not long till they find themselves not only hiding in a cave, but under the feet of Israel's warriors in a place of abject subjection. And then Joshua comes and puts them all to death with the sword. And he hangs them from a tree. Hanging from a tree, as you know, is a sign of being under a curse. You see, Joshua's inadequacy and our inadequacy is inconsequential to God. It does not stop his accomplishing his own will. God's will prevails in giving Israel the land. Joshua ends up destroying the entire southern uh, leadership in a single campaign. Trusting God's empowering presence with him and listening to God's counsel and doing exactly as God tells him to do, he defeats the real enemy here, king inadequacy. When we are faced with feelings of inadequacy, let us allow that inadequacy to drive us to prayer as it did with Joshua. So now the battle moves north to the city of Hazor. Hazor Hazor is the most important northern stronghold. It's on a main north-south trade route to Mesopotamia and to Syria. It is the largest and strongest city in the north. Hearing how God has given Israel the victory in the south... Jabin, king of Hazor, is getting really nervous because he knows that Joshua is slowly taking over the country. 
The Israelites are winning battle after battle. So he recruits the, the largest and most powerful and well-equipped army of the day from among his northern allies, and he chooses a battle site that's favorable to him where his horses and chariots can uh, do their best to uh, win the victory. So Joshua is at another place, another test of covenant loyalty, another ready, aim, fire moment. He has no horses and chariots to rely on, and he's outnumbered by great odds. But he doesn't let those odds immobilize him. He knows that God is with them and that he doesn't need and they don't need to rely on themselves. So he organizes a surprise attack. He marches 40 miles, captures all the cities, destroys all the inhabitants, circles back around to Hazor, destroys those inhabitants, um, and burns the city to the ground, just as God had commanded him to do, just as he did with Jericho, just as he did with Ai, burned it to the ground. And as he does, just as the Lord has commanded him to do, he has defeated the real enemy, self-reliance. When we find ourselves tempted to trust in our own strength and to rely on ourselves to fight our battles, let's remember that the overwhelming odds we face are no match for an overpowering God. So the campaign is completed. The land has rest from war. The land is not theirs yet, but the power of the Canaanite kings has been broken. It only remains now for the individual tribes to move into the territory that will be allotted to them and to take possession of the land. And we see in chapter 11 of Joshua, the first time in scripture, where this land that God promised to Abraham is called the land of the sons of Israel. You see, the exodus is now over. They're in the land. There's tangible, that land, the possession of the land is tangible evidence that God is a powerful, covenant-keeping God, one who keeps every promise he makes. So Joshua has spent seven years fighting battle after battle after battle. Battles that ultimately break the power of the Canaanites as God gives the victory. He was fighting visible human enemies in real, literal, physical battles. Our enemies may not necessarily be visible, physical armies, but rather spiritual enemies who tests our covenant loyalty to God. We all have our ready, aim, fire moments as enemy kings attack us. So what will anchor us in the victory in battle? First we see ready, aim, fire. We'll take ready first. That is the first element in victory is readiness for the battle. What will get us ready? The first thing that will get us ready is God's empowering presence. You remember before the children of Israel cross the Jordan River, God appears to Joshua and he says, I'm with you 
wherever you go. I'll not fail you or forsake you. You have no need to be afraid. God's presence secures the victory. In their encounter with the crafty Gibeonites, Israel's leaders, for a moment, forget God's presence with them. No one seems to remember that God is actively present in the moment, even though he's right there with them, ready to come to their aid. They rely on their own understanding, their own perception of the situation, and they end up in an alliance that is going to trouble the nation for centuries. But they do not let this failure get the best of them and do them in. They begin to recognize that God is actively present in the moment. So are you facing king failure in some area of your life, in some battle that you are facing today? Remember, God is in the moment, fully present to you, actively with you, And in you, and he will not leave you or fail you, even if you stumble and mess up and do it all wrong. And we need to remember that God is even closer to us than he was to Joshua. Because he permanently indwells us by his Holy Spirit. And as the Spirit indwells us, the the renewing breath of the Holy Spirit revitalizes our mind our will, our emotions, our motivations, our hopes, our aspirations into Christ-likeness and also empowers us to will and to do God's good pleasure. We're hid with Christ in God. Without him, we can do nothing. We have many, many assurances of God's empowering presence with us at all times. Acknowledging his empowering presence is the first step that will anchor us in, in victory. But readiness also requires one more part, God's wise counsel. You remember Joshua was told if he meditated on God's word day and night, he would have success in the battles that he was about to fight. The thing that we need to realize and understand and admit and swear to, <laughs> I don't know the strong enough terms to put this, um, Our thought processes are so warped by the fall that we cannot think straight. We need God's word to renew our minds. We cannot depend on what we think or what we feel and what we think we know and what we think we see because we don't see it all. We don't know it all. We cannot think straight. But the good news is that God not only is actively present in the moment with us, but he also speaks to us personally in the moment. In every ready, aim, fire moment that you face, God speaks. As Joshua thinks back on the past failures, he is reminded again and again of the necessity of God's counsel in every battle. And we see that God faithfully speaks to Joshua every time, instructing him what to do. Faced with fearful situations, impossible odds, what does Joshua do? He prays, he listens, he believes God, and he encourages his men to follow along with him in faith. Quite a different outcome when he listens to God's counsel. 
So are you facing king inadequacy or king self-reliance? You know, they're actually opposite ends of the spectrum, aren't they? King inadequacy says you can't do anything at all. You poor pitiful thing. King self-reliance has got this covered. You're capable of all things that you want to put your hand to. But we need to remember when we feel those feelings of inadequacy or when we feel very self-confident that God is not only actively present in the moment, but he also speaks personally to us in the moment. He tells us what he will do. He tells us what we must do. His presence and his counsel make us ready for the opposition and victory is certain. But that's not all it takes, not just readiness. We also have to aim. Aim carefully at the target. Survey the situation and make appropriate battle plans because God does give specific strategy in the moment. Joshua takes into account By God's grace, he takes into account the nature of the enemy, the the terrain on which he's fighting, and he makes specific plans according to what God has shown him. Two battles are never the same. In one battle, he's fighting on mountainous terrain in the south, but when he moves to the north, the battle's in a plain where the horses and chariots are effective. Once he he forces an overnight march, the next time he he... arranges a surprise attack. In one battle, hailstones kill more people than the Israelites do. In other battles, it's extended hand-to-hand combat. One battle, the sun stands still, and it's over in a day. But it took seven entire years for the conquest to be complete. So you see, you can't depend, Joshua can't depend on a one-size-fits-all battle plan. (laughs) And neither can we. Strategy is essential because our enemies come in three basic categories, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And scripture is clear that we fight each of those enemies in a different way. So let's look at them. First, let's look at the world system. Now we know this probably, this is all new, nothing here is new to you, but we're going to go over it anyway just to refresh our memories on what are we talking about when we talk about the world system. It's first and foremost a system of philosophies that try to tell us what the world is like and how we ought to live in it. Philosophies like secularism, which is rampant today, um, that teaches us that this life is all there is. And then there's humanism that teaches us everything revolves around me. And then... There's also relativism that says absolute truth doesn't exist. And then there's materialism that says you are defined by what you have. That's just a simplified version, okay? But philosophies bombard us all day, every day from the world outside, from the media, and just in our culture is another part of the world system, our culture imposes values on us and we don't even realize we've been imposed on. Our, the culture sets forth rules of behavior that we must follow or we will be publicly shamed if we don't. And that's a powerful tool to form us and to crunch us into its mold. 
Also, the cares of this life can claim our allegiance. All the little things we have to do um, that can distract us from our devotion to God. The world system is constantly testing our covenant loyalty, loyalty to the Father. We read in 1 John two fifteen: If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So primarily, the world is in opposition to the Father. So when you feel the philosophies of this world and the culture that we live in and the cares of this world pressing in on you, what do you do? The key word for victory is faith. 1 John 5, 4 and 5. This is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. So don't be taken captive by these empty philosophies that you are bombarded with. You say, well, my faith is not very strong. My answer to that is, if your faith is anemic, then you need to concentrate on developing your love relationship with God. And as you know him better, it becomes easier and easier to believe what he says. And your faith grows. And as you mix the word of God with faith, it becomes profitable to you. So the way to fight the philosophies and the culture is through faith, believing who God is and what he can do. All right, let's look now at the flesh. It's hard to put a definition on this one in a way. It's so it's such a big uh, entity, but we are all familiar with it, aren't we? It drives us every day. The lusts of the flesh, the scripture speaks about the lust of the flesh, the lust of the mind, the lust of the eyes, all kinds of lusts. It's not just sexual things, but all kinds of things that drive us and compel us and force us um, to self-satisfy. All the self-sins, the self-aggrandizement, the uh, self-glorification, the self-pity, all those self-things are part of the, fle- <clears throat> of the flesh, the desire to be served, the desire to um, just let your emotions take over and just you have those emotional outbursts. The flesh is constantly testing our covenant loyalty to the Spirit of God. We read in Galatians five seventeen, the flesh wars against the Spirit. So when you feel the onslaught of your own lusts, And all those self-sins assert themselves and make you want to be the center of all things um, and get your way in everything. The key word for victory is flee. Flee youthful lusts. Make no provision for the flesh. The flip side of this is to walk in the spirit and you will not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. So we deal with the world through faith. We deal with the flesh by fleeing. And that leads us to look at the devil. An angelic person created by God who fell from his high position of guarding God's glory through his prideful desires to be like God. We all know this. He's known by several names in scripture that give us a clue to who he is. Let me just review a few of them with you. Adversary, slanderer, accuser, destroyer, 
murderer, tempter, liar, deceiver, crafty, evil. I could go on and on, right? You know the list. The way to tell that you are being attacked by the devil is by looking at these names. If you are feeling accused when you've already repented and and um, come to the Lord for forgiveness. If you feel opposition in every good thing you try to do, there's something that comes against you. If you are lying or being lied to, if you are manipulating and crafty in the way that you interface with other people, all this is from your father, the devil. (laughs) So the devil is powerful, but he can only operate, as you know, within the limits that God sets for him. He often uses the world system, the philosophies of the world, to tempt our flesh so that we are enticed away from the Son of God. He is in opposition to the Son of God and every one that the Son of God loves and wants to redeem and has redeemed. So if you feel the devil's hot breath on your heels, the way to victory, the key word is to fight. Resist the devil and he will flee from you, James 4, 7. And of course, we read in Ephesians 6, the armor that we're to put on as we fight the devil, the armor of truth and righteousness and the gospel message and faith and salvation, the word of God and prayer. We don't have time to cover all those, but you can look at that on your own. That is the way to fight the devil. So we have the world is dealt with by our faith. The flesh, the key word is flee. For the devil, the key word is fight. As the world and the flesh and the devil tempt us to violate our covenant loyalty to God, we must identify the target. We need to know which one of those things it is so that we can aim the right weapon toward it. And this will anchor us in victory. So we have ready, aim, and now fire. We may be ready In the knowledge that God is actively present with us, we may have all the scriptures lined up through which God has spoken to us. We may have identified the target and strategize all we want, but it all comes to nothing if we don't fire the weapon. (laughs) We read all through the scripture, really, but especially as we've looked in the book of Joshua, that God gives the victory as Joshua does as the Lord God of Israel commands. He doesn't leave anything undone that God tells him to do. God enables obedience in the moment. Eager, meticulous obedience. Not grudgingly, but eagerly and joyfully obedient to the things that he has told us to do. It's the the capstone of victory over the kings that come against us. So every day, we face ready, aim, fire moments. As very real enemy kings oppose us. So what kind of warrior are you? Are you the procrastinator? Ready, aim, 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 aim. I think I need to pray about it a little bit more before, you know, or I need to go to uh, get a little more training in my witnessing or, or I have some, uh, 
I got to go pick the kids up from school. I mean, we can find a million excuses, right, (laughs) for putting off what God has told us to do, and the moment passes, and you've missed the opportunity. Or maybe you're the machine gun operator. Ready, fire, 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 fire. If I just shoot often enough and quickly enough, I'm bound to hit something. You act impulsively. See, this is a good one. I mean, this is the one I like right here. This is the one I do. I just sometimes, before I know it, I've done what I'm going to do, you know, and I don't even think about it. I don't even ask for God's leadership and guidance in it. The problem with that is you just waste your energy because you don't gain any victory when you don't aim. Or maybe you're the nonchalant warrior. Ready, fire, aim. No need to bother aiming. If I miss, I'll just try again. You know, it's okay. But what happens when you fail to identify the target is that you have unnecessary casualties. I've done that before when I thought I knew what the situation was and I've, I zero in on somebody and give them three verses of why they shouldn't have done that. And it, it wasn't even, I didn't even understand the situation. And what I have is a wounded person, an offended brother who's harder to be won than a strong city. You don't want to go there. Or maybe you're the sharpshooter. Ready, aim, fire. And what you say is, I am ready because my God is actively present with me in the moment and has counseled me personally in the moment. I've identified and zeroed in on the target. I've got the proper weapon ready. And I fire the weapon and successfully disable the enemy. So what king are you facing? I may not have named your king. Your king may be something different. I couldn't possibly name all the kings that are that there are. But the few that plague me are these. King failure. Are you dealing with him today? Or king adequacy? Or maybe it's king self-reliance. King anger loves to get a finger in the pie. King self-righteousness can sneak up on us without our even realizing it. How about king revenge? King self-pity? Name your own king. If we are secure in the knowledge of God's empowering presence, if we have been instructed by his counsel, if we've identified the target and aimed at it carefully, using the right weapon, if we have acted in God-enabled obedience, each of us can be anchored in victory. Ready, aim, fire. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for your presence with us, for your instruction, for the strategy that you give us, for the way that you win the battles, And we are um, delighted that you empower us to obey you. Lord, would you equip us that we might be ready when the enemy kings um, who are lurking, lying in wait for us, when they 
surface. May we recognize them and move out in these steps of victory. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.